You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Charles Spurgeon was walking through uh, uh, the St. James area of London where all the men's clubs are. And, uh, and, and if you've never seen a picture of Charles Spurgeon, he was a unique look. Everybody knew who Spurgeon was, not just because of his preaching, but because he was a singularly unattractive man. And uh, he was walking through St. James, and uh, a man was walking up into his club and had an almost full cigar that he had already lit, just tossed it off to the side, and a little boy ran up and grabbed it and was about to start puffing on it, and he looked up, and there was Spurgeon standing over him. And Spurgeon said, young man, can you smoke that cigar to the glory of God? And the little boy said, no, sir, I can't. Spurgeon said, I can. Give it here. Um, so I've been thinking a lot of Spurgeon because uh, he was actually confronted by uh, some concerned parishioners and deacons because he used a lot of humor in the pulpit, and some people thought that that was really inappropriate. And so they, the, they were laying out their complaints to Spurgeon, and Spurgeon kind of got this little glimmer in his eye and a little smirk on his face, and they finally said, see, even here, it's inappropriate. What is so funny, Mr. Spurgeon? And he said, I'm just astounded. He said, you should be applauding me for my restraint, because if I really let go, uh, we really would have some problems. So anyway, uh, I think about that. Well, let's, uh, let's pray first. And then turn our, and let's turn our attention to Jesus. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for loving us so much that you would send your Son into the world, not uh, that the world would be condemned, but that we might uh, be given everlasting life and live uh, in him and through him. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm conflating a, bu- conflating a bunch of articles today, uh, and really all we're going to talk about is who Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus? And this is absolutely central to Christianity. That might come as a shocker to some of you. Uh, but if you actually think about it, any founder of any other religion, if they were to die, it actually wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't make a difference. And it doesn't make a difference because, of course, the Buddha, dead. Muhammad, dead. Uh, but if Jesus had died, that would have been the end of Christianity. We get very confused. Uh, and I heard one, uh, I didn't hear this person, I read... Uh, an extract, a little uh, excerpt from their sermon, uh, an Easter sermon a couple years ago, a minister said that even if they found the bones of Jesus in a tomb in Jerusalem, that they would still be a Christian. I wouldn't. I mean, viva Las Vegas, baby. I'm, I'm out of here. Like, I mean, really, I mean, what's the point? And Paul goes so far as to say, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we're most of all people to be pitied. And so Jesus is absolutely essential and central to the Christian message, which is why we often talk about Christianity being about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see this manifested in Matthew chapter 16. And so let's take a look at that, uh, Matthew 16, beginning with the 13th verse, and we'll go down to uh, verse 23. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. So here we see the turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point in Matthew 16, as well as the other Gospels, the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's an important question. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is still a very lovely part of Israel today. It's up by the Golan Heights in the northern part of Israel. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. You can actually go, and that's where you see the Jordan River start. And it was full of temples, uh, temples to pagan gods. In fact, the Romans believed that uh, the god uh, man-goat uh, Pan, you know, Pan with the, um, the little lute, um, or no, it's more like this, isn't it? Anyway, uh, with the loot, he was conceived in the cave of the headwaters of the Jordan River. And there's a big rock face there, and there are all these niches. You can still see them today. And all of those niches had idols in them. And Jesus takes his disciples there, and it's in the midst of that, all these temples and uh, pagan idols where no good Jewish boy would want to go. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? But more importantly, who do you say that I am? And that's a question that all of us have to answer in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And Peter says, look, you know, a lot of people say a lot of things. They say that uh, you're John the Baptist, right? Well, that, that's kind of funny, but John the Baptist is dead, but maybe the spirit of John the Baptist, his mantle at least, has, uh, has rested on Jesus. Uh, you're the prophet in the wilderness, or you're Elijah, right? He is the prophet that is going to return uh, before the Messiah returns, which is why if you go to uh, a, um, a Jewish home for a Seder feast, uh, they normally keep one seat empty. And who's that seat for? Elijah, right? And then um, others say uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Of course, Jeremiah, the great prophet who uh, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, uh, a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Uh, or you're just a prophet. What's that? I'm sorry, Nehemiah had that. And Jeremiah, the great prophet during the exile... Uh, Balaam, thank you so much. It was one of the Mayas. Um, thank you. Um, uh, so you have a prophetic voice, and, and that's true. Jesus was uh, a prophet, uh, but he was no new Moses. Right? He, wasn't, uh, he was in the tradition of the prophets who had gone before, but he was wholly different, wholly different. In fact, I can't help but think of Jesus' uh, standing before the crowds when Pilate said, who shall I release for you, Jesus or Barabbas? Because here in this passage, he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. What does that mean? What does Bar-Jonah mean? Bar just means son of, right? So Barabbas actually uh, means daddy's boy. Not exactly a flattering uh, name. Uh, But Simon, son of Jonah, meaning you're a human being and you've got it right. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is a supernatural exclamation and declaration of who Jesus Christ is. Now, there's a difference because a lot of people will talk about knowing Jesus Christ, but there's a difference between knowing Him and knowing about Him. We really don't have uh, as many words or ways of saying things in English that that other languages uh, do. So, for instance, in French... Uh, you, uh, you have a verb that is to know something, and then you have a verb that is to know uh, about something. And there's a big difference. Like, I can say, um, I don't mean this to be partisan, but it was the funniest thing, and she's six years old, and it, it, I don't know where she gets this stuff from, not me. Um, my daughter, Mary Cavill, had a little carrot, and she dipped it into some um, hummus the other day, and so it had kind of this whip on top of it. And she said, look, it's the president. Um, and, um, and I just thought that that was so funny. Uh, and, um, uh, she watches, she watches the news. Um, but look, I can say, um, hey, uh, Donald Trump, um, he has, uh, a, um, a wife and a son that live with him in the, uh, White House, and, uh, his wife is from Eastern Europe and, uh, is a former model and uh, Donald Trump uh, went to Penn, and uh, he lives, I even know his address, he lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, I, I could say a whole, a whole bunch of things. I know a lot about Donald Trump, but do I know the president? No. I don't know the president at all. And in the same way, we can know a lot about Jesus. We can have all of our facts, but do we know him? Uh, do we know him personally? Uh, not only do we know him, does, does he know us. And in order for us to really know Jesus, uh, the eyes of our hearts have to be opened. Now, if you're one of those people right now who's saying, well, I'm not sure if I know about Jesus or I know Jesus right now, uh, that's almost a certain guarantee that you know Jesus. Right? And, and you, you understand it because you actually have a personal relationship with him uh, and uh, that you understand him uh, as who he is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's come into the world uh, to, to save the world. And Simon gets this. But not only is it important to know who Jesus is, it's the second part that is just as important that we often forget about, which is what did Jesus come to do? Because if we just stopped right there, that would allow us to say, well, Jesus was simply a prophet, or Jesus was simply a good man uh, who walked the earth. I think C.S. Lewis was right. Uh, With Jesus, you only have so many options. He's either a lunatic, because he's a crazy man, right? No one says these things unless you're crazy. I and the Father are one. I mean, if if someone came up to your door and said, hi, I was born in a feeding trough, and I and the Father are one, and you can do nothing apart from me, you would say, well, let's see how you do with the police department, right? Um, uh, So he was either lunatic, he was a liar, he just lied, he just made stuff up, uh, or he was Lord. He was actually who uh, he said he was. Uh, But if he is who he said he was, it meant that what he said about what he came to do is true too. And I have heard people say, well, the cross was an unfortunate circumstance. Jesus was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. And from a worldly point of view, that's absolutely true. It was a total miscarriage of justice. It was a kangaroo court. Because remember, Pilate tried everything he could possibly do 
to get out of the situation. Now, that doesn't relieve Pilate of responsibility. But at the same time, what we see is that this was part of God's divine plan, that even if Pilate didn't want to do it, it was going down whether he liked it or not. Right? The very ex- exact language that Jesus uses, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, even get specific from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right? Jesus, his moral teacher, is fine. But Jesus, who says that I have to go and die and be raised from the dead, that's where we start to get a little bit crazy. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Timothy suffered mightily from timidity. And I'd like to say, oh, well, Timothy, you know, just step up to the plate and do what you've got to do. Uh, But I I realize that uh, that's something that many of us as Christians suffer from regularly is timidity. And although we would say, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, those moments in our lives where actually it is a reflection of being shameful of the gospel because we're more worried about men than we are about God. And so if someone said to us, well, I'm I'm spiritual but not religious, trek with that. You know, our culture will will allow that to to be discussed and put into the public square. Or, um, well, I I believe in God, right? Um, uh, But the moment you begin talking about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, uh, sayonara. Right? That's when you start losing friends. Uh, that's when people start calling you uh, a nut. And part of it is just they don't have the eyes to see it. It hasn't been revealed to them. Uh, and we need to be praying that God opens their eyes to behold Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do. Uh, and uh, Because I look at uh, passages that get a lot of negative press that if we were to say, uh, say this in public... Um, Uh, where is it? Here we are. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, That's part of the funeral readings that we normally have in the Episcopal Church. But more and more, when I've gone to other churches, they've actually cut that line out. Why? I think they're ashamed of it. But if you understand who you are and what needs to happen, if you understand that you're in need of a Savior and in need of saving, you praise God not in an arrogant way that Jesus is the way, but you praise God that there is a way. I mean, think about it. If you fell off an ocean liner and someone threw you one of those little orange life things, would you yell up, I want options? No. What would you do? You'd take hold of it and you would say, Praise God that somebody's through me, whatever it is. There's no, if we understand our desperate condition and our desperate shape, we praise God that there is a way and that it's been set forth in Jesus. Right? In, in a very clear fashion that Jesus is our only uh, hope. And so who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Right? Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, we get used to talking about Jesus as the Son of God, but we also need to understand that Jesus is God the Son as well. He's not just a figure who was adopted by God who said, hey, he seems like a pretty good option, uh, but Jesus was before the foundations of the earth. Now, there are places like Colossians 1.15 where 
it talks of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. Or even using words like begotten. But we can't help but think of them in literal English. What they actually mean is in Roman culture, and even in Jewish culture, what does it mean to be the firstborn? You're the heir. right? So this is actually legal language. He's the heir of all creation. There was not a time when Jesus wasn't. It, he's, just, he's always, always been there. Now, there is this unique moment called the Incarnation where God comes to us and takes on flesh. And this piggybacks a little bit on what we started to get into last week, where Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man, right? Mathematically, that doesn't make sense. But God is not confined by nature. God is not confined by nature. And so Jesus is God. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Someone brought up the, the issue last week of what about his suffering? Because the first article says that God is impassable, uh, which means that God does not suffer emotions. He doesn't have the same um, uh, uh, vulnerability and manipulatability. Is that a word, manipulatability? Uh, You can't manipulate God is what it means. He's without passions. He's without parts. He's impassable. And yet what we see in Jesus is that he did suffer, and Jesus was even tempted. But how was he tempted? And how did he die? In his flesh, right? So Jesus um, uh, knew what it was to to be tempted, uh, yet did not sin. Uh, He knew what it meant to be hungry on the cross. He said, I thirst. Uh, In all likelihood, uh, Jesus had acne at Nazareth Junior High School. Um, All of those types of things where he was able to identify with his broken creation in his humanity, and yet all along, uh, he is still God in the flesh and only gives way in those ways which he wills. Uh, And um, one of the great and amazing things is that uh, God is so for us in his coming and dwelling amongst us and and dying on the cross for us and being raised from the dead for us. He is so for us uh, that he's against himself. He's so for us that he's against himself. And so that's, and and this is where a lot of people don't want to go because it's an awkward conversation as Christians. What does it mean for Jesus to be on the cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an uncomfortable, but and yet uh, there is uh, the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about, uh, the Christ uh, who would uh, die for us, the crucified uh, God. Uh, And so uh, felt it even in his own self, uh, the uh, alienation that he was feeling uh, from uh, his uh, father as he was for us. Now, I do want to pick on um, something real quick that we didn't get to uh, last week, that if Jesus is uh, the uh, invisible God, then what do we do with things uh, like uh, God's commandment to not make any graven image um, uh, of, of himself or to have any sort of representation of himself made. And I'll, this is important for a couple reasons, but let me just keep going. Um, we go back to the golden calf incident. Moses had gone up on the mountain. The people start to get a little bit, you know, where's Moses? We don't even know if he's still alive. What's happening here? 
And so they go to Aaron and they said, we want you to fashion for us a golden calf in which we can, so that we can worship. But who is it that they think they're worshiping? God. Right? They don't think that they're worshiping the cow god. Uh, they think that they're worshiping Yahweh. Uh, just in, embodied, though, and represented by this golden calf. And then Moses comes down the mountain, and it's a great, great scene. Uh, it's like a parent with their little child. Uh, Moses is saying, what in the world happened? And Aaron says, I don't know. We just threw in all the jewelry in the furnace, and out popped the cow. Um, that's what he says. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, uh, a violation of uh, the second commandment. Uh, but I've even uh, come to a place where I get very antsy about any representation of God um, whatsoever, uh, mainly because of our own human hearts that I don't feel that they're really necessarily an aid to worship. Now, I struggle with this. I struggle with this because one of my favorite windows in all of the Advent is the one of Jesus over on the left, the little triptych of the, of the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection, and the, and the ascension. And yet it's really hard for us as human beings to, to not connect our visual image of that to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, how many of us know what Jesus looks like? Nobody. And yet we say, like, uh, the other day I was ta- when I was at, uh, down in Tuscaloosa, I was trying to point somebody out who was uh, scantily clad, and they're like, which one? And I said... I said, the one in front of Jesus, because there's this guy with long hair and a beard and sandals, and he was walking along. Well, why do I have that image of him? Because the Bible? No, because of art, right? because of art. And in fact, how many of you saw The Robe, uh, the movie The Robe, or even Ben-Hur? Right? I mean, that, what, 1950s, that, was, that, was, uh, that came out. And what is unique about their depiction of Jesus in those movies? They never show his face. Because even then, the whole idea of anthropomorphizing Jesus Christ, who of course was a man, but it would have been inappropriate to depict him in any human, uh, human way. Now, of course, we're, we're kind of... Uh, that's no longer the case uh, in our culture. And so I would just say that even though Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God that we need to be very careful because even God created uh, things to help the people understand the nature of his grace and mercy that were easily corrupted. So in Numbers 21, remember when the vipers enter the camp of the Israelites. And what does God say? Take the staff, bronze serpent, hold it up, and anyone who looks to that bronze serpent will be healed. I mean, a, a, a very clear, vivid image of what was coming in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, after that, we find in 2 Kings 18.4 that after years and years and years, so we're into the, the, the kings of Israel at this point, uh, way long, before Mo, long after Moses. Uh, and what do they end up doing with uh, the bronze serpent? I'll, um, it makes an appearance again. We don't hear from it ever again, but then we hear this. Uh, 2 Kings 18.4. He removed the high places and broke... Um, um, he removed the high places. This is uh, Hezekiah. 
Uh, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, which is a pagan pole to a fertility goddess. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So what had they done with this thing that was supposed to be an image of God's salvation? They themselves began to worship the image of it in their own minds because they had moved from it being a representation to being the actual thing. And, that, and before we start criticizing people, that can be easily the case. And so that's why I'm, I'm very leery of things like icons uh, because um, you can begin actually praying to the icon itself, thinking that it's not simply a representation of Jesus. It is the representation of Jesus here in this world. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not into creativity or, or, or church arts and things like that, uh, but I want us to take very seriously that Jesus did not leave us an image behind. Uh, what was left behind was his testimony, and that Christianity is actually an audible faith, not a visible faith. It doesn't mean that there aren't visual things that help us, but the problem that we have is that we are a visual people. This is why Simon says it's such a powerful game. So if I said, look down. Everybody looked up, right? You're watching what I'm doing. And that's the amazing thing about the transfiguration. When they see him transfigured, Peter, James, and John, Peter says, well, let's build stuff up here and stay here for a while. And yet, as Jesus is transfigured and his radiance and his glory is revealed, what does the voice from heaven say? Listen to him. It doesn't say look at him, which seems silly because... We're looking at him, all right? We can't help but look at him. And yet, uh, God the Father says, I don't want you to look at him. I want you to listen to him. I want you to listen to him. And so actually what's more important is the testimonial about who Jesus is because that actually paints the picture for us of who he is and what he's come to do. Now, I do think it's helpful. I've actually, um, I don't know, she may be here this morning. She comes every once in a while. There was a lady who uh, brought in some uh, exchange students from China that were at UAB Medical School, and uh, she just wanted to show them some church architecture because most of them had never seen a church. And so it was a great opportunity for me to actually, I walked through our windows and told the story of Jesus, right? Uh, But I don't think that it would have been effective at all if I just said, hey, why don't you just take a look at the windows and figure it out for yourself? I mean, you would kind of just look around and you'd be like, wait a minute, so what happened between that window and this guy up here on the, on the tree? I, I don't get that. Uh, but it actually required me to unpack that for them. But the visuals uh, certainly uh, were uh, helpful. But also, uh, you know, the John 1 where we read that the word, well, let's just read it. Um, Let me try to paraphrase. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now this word, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. The Greek word here is logos. But it's hard because we translate it as word when actually, more often than not, in our own everyday vocabulary, we use the word what? Logic? Right? That's what log- I mean, that's where actually we get the word logic from, is from this. And so, Jesus is not 
simply the word, but when we do talk about Jesus as the word, what we mean is that Jesus is the revealed plan and purpose of God, the one through whom we come to understand who God is and what he has done for us. That's what it means that Jesus is the word. He is the logic. He helps make sense of everything. And if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. Right? If you want to be a friend of God, if someone says, well, I know God, um, you, know, you could also tell them what the New Testament says and say, well, so does the devil. Right? Uh, he knows that too. Uh, I'm sure that'll clear the way for you to evangelize them. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but to actually, for us to know God, we need to know uh, who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And not simply that, but to actually uh, know uh, him. Now, very la- the last thing I want to point out in uh, our articles is uh, this uh, last uh, sentence in Article uh, 2. It says, uh, Jesus, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his Father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt but also for all actual sins of men. Now, this is a funny way of putting it. Because to reconcile his father to us, today we would probably say what? That Jesus' death on the cross reconciled us to the father. Right? That's how we would speak of it. So why did the reformers say this? Because it's been lost. <laughs> and they knew the tendency and the propensity of us to, to... It's true, absolutely, that Jesus' cross reconciles us to the father, but it also reconciles the father to us. So the word that we use... Um, And we use it in the comfortable words. Uh, And he is the propitiation for our sins. I mean, you ever wonder, why do we use that word? Well, there's not really, the NIV always translates it as an atoning sacrifice, which kind of gets at it, but not really. Uh, So propitiation is the word that, that we use. What does that mean? It means that what the cross affects, what Jesus does for us on the cross, is it's not just one, yes, it's, He's the substitution and satisfaction for the sins of the world, right? He, he dies in our stead. He takes our place. Uh, he also shows us uh, how great his love for us. It is a demonstration of love, but it's certainly not exclusively that. Uh, but finally, he reconciles the Father to us. Now, this is very unpopular. Because what we hear, and we heard it in Ephesians 2, is that by nature, we are what? Children of wrath. Put that on a Christmas card. Uh, uh, We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of the mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the other thing that the cross does for us is it actually averts, it satisfies the wrath of God. I mean, this is a big sticking point for some people because they have a hard time believing that God would actually be wrathful toward humankind. Doesn't sound nice, does it? Then why is it necessary that God's wrath be satisfied? One, justice. Right, so the woman who's caught in the act of adultery and Jesus forgives her that I preached on this morning, he didn't kind of wink and nod. You know, Jesus' forgiveness of us is not, hey, I forgive you and I'm just going to look the other way. It's not a legal fiction. What needs to happen is that the penalty for sin has to be carried out. It has to be meted out. It has to be real. 
And so rather than us getting what we deserve, all of that is poured upon Jesus on the cross. Great illustration of this in the Bible is Noah's Ark. God makes a promise to Noah that he would never flood the world again. And as a sign of that promise, what does he do? He puts a rainbow in the sky. Now we think that that's cute and we put it in children's nurseries and, and, and all that. But it, there would have been no mistaking in Noah's day uh, and really up until maybe our day what that meant because that bow represented a battle bow that is no longer aimed at the earth but aimed at who? God himself. And when Jesus died on the cross, that bow was loosed and the arrow of judgment came upon Jesus himself. Right? That's the covenant with Noah fulfilled, that Jesus himself took on uh, God's wrath, which is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all the sins of the world upon him uh, were laid. And it is by that that we're actually now reconciled uh, to God uh, the Father, and we can have access to him. One of the reasons in which why the Holy Spirit didn't manifest himself in the way that he did at Pentecost before then, the Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit was there. Uh, we hear David talk about the Holy Spirit, especially in his lament, Psalm of Lament when he had the affair with Bathsheba. Uh, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Uh, we read of it in the beginning of in Genesis when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters uh, of creation. Well, uh, but it's not until Pentecost uh, when all of a sudden you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. How is that made possible? Jesus, Why? Because man cannot enter into the holy places. God cannot stand sin. He can't tolerate it. He can't be anywhere near it. And so serious is it that on the day of atonement, when the priest would go in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the holy of holies, they would tie a rope around his ankle. Because if he died, I'm not going in. You won't have to pull him out. Uh, and so they did that in order to, so that they wouldn't have to go down. And as one of the sextons here said it, I've seen Indiana Jones. I'm not going in there. Uh, and so, but then Jesus dies on the cross. And what happens in the temple? The curtain that you have to walk through to get into the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom. Why? Because where does God's presence now dwell? In us. We're the spiritual stones that make up the temple. And that's only made possible because of the reconciliation that we have, that God can now enter us because of Jesus Christ. He can't simply say, well, I'm going to look the other way. But actually, sin has to be reckoned with. And this is not a harsh message. Actually, isn't this what we want? Otherwise, God is not all-powerful. I mean, at the end of the day, as I've mentioned before, I've told my kids when they get into big fights about things, I say, look, Jesus is coming to judge, and nobody's getting away with anything. So just rest in that, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Like, your sister's going to be judged uh, for this, and you're going to be judged for that. Uh, And so just be ready. Uh, So the only way that the world is going to be set to rights is through the cross. And don't we long for that day when the world is set to rights? I mean, when, when injustice is undone, uh, when cancer's no longer a reality, uh, when this broken down world is remade and, and new and, and everything works the way that God had intended it to work, right? that's what we're moving toward. 
Uh, that's what we're moving toward. And so uh, that's, so for the judgment for Christians, when Jesus returns, I can understand why it's a, it's a dreadful prospect uh, for some. Uh, but for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be excited about it. Why? Because we plead the merits of Jesus Christ. And even though we know our sinful selves, we know that we've been cleansed by His blood and we stand in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. And we long for the day, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because that is the day when all things will be set to rights. And that's a day that we should look forward to, uh, not dread. And if you're dreading it, look to Jesus. Uh, Look to Jesus. All right, I'm going to stop there. Again, I didn't even get near what I needed to do. But questions, comments, and concerns. You started off talking about Jesus saying, tell him, saying don't tell anybody. Right. Go away and, and keep it a secret. And that's throughout the Gospels. He did that many times. Yes. Finally gets to the end of Matthew, and he says, go out and tell everybody in the world. That's right. Where, what, where am I missing the connection here? Because yeah, that's, that's the Episcopal Church's favorite verse on evangelism. Uh, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, what you have there, too, though, is that Jesus' time had not yet come. His time had not yet come, meaning that to talk about it now actually would precipitate what didn't need to happen quite yet. So, for instance, Jesus and the disciples, when Lazarus had died, they had received word that Lazarus was ill. But Jesus didn't go anywhere. In fact, he was criticized for it. Well, golly, I mean, he's ill. We've got to leave now if we want to catch him alive. He might be dead. And, of course, by the time they get to Bethany, he is dead. But remember when, um, when Jesus finally says, let's go to Jerusalem, everybody else says what? Well, we go to die. They knew that going to Jerusalem, and, of course, it would precipitate, that would set an event, the, motion, the motions of the last week of uh, Jesus' life. And so... In God's providence, it wasn't time yet for them to say, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he has come to do. That in his own timing, whatever the reason might be, I don't know, this is why I'm going to, to announce the kingdom of God, who I am, and, and what I've come to do. And the crazy thing is, even when he does it, people don't listen. In fact, what they end up doing is demanding more signs. And Jesus says... I. I mean, you could have Moses come to you. I mean, if the Son of Man is right before your eyes and you're not believing on me, then who will you believe? So I think it's more of a providential timing issue uh, than it is anything, uh, anything else. That, and I think, too, that part of it is the equipping of the Holy Spirit for the disciples to do the evangelism. I mean, you've got Peter at the, at the, um, during Jesus' trial denying Jesus to a little girl And then after his filling with the Holy Spirit, he's preaching to the very group of people that, I mean, he even says it, Jesus whom you crucified before the Sanhedrin. He's a totally different man. And so I don't think he would have been able to, they wouldn't have been able to have that mission or witness. But do you have something else you want to follow up on that? It's just, I guess the the whole story is too long to tell. But he talked to, to huge crowds of people telling them the story along the way. So that part doesn't fit either. If he didn't want anybody to know, why did he talk to big crowds? Yeah, I think, well, it's a word that's specifically to the disciples. I mean, look, I mean, 
it may be that um, Jesus, and, and certainly he would understand. If I want, if I want uh, to make sure that my kids uh, talk a lot about something, I tell them not to talk about it. I mean, it may be that. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Jesus uh, strictly... And, and what we actually see is that isn't the case, that they do go out and, and tell, uh, tell people, and they have their missions and things like that. So if somebody wants to comment on that... Uh, I don't want to comment on it. I just want to say this is uh, on a different subject. If you were not in the 9 o'clock service... Don't miss the 11 o'clock service. It's one of Andrew's best. Oh, great. Now I'm going to blow it. That's, that's just super. It's just more of the same. Adulterating. Adulterating. Um, well, that's, you know, I mean, I know that people have written on that, and, uh, and there are some seminarians here on the front row that uh, can, can tell me what your thoughts are on why uh, and how, and get me out of here. Um, so I actually just watched a video on YouTube by a group called The Bible Project, and these are people who've gone through a seminary, and they make videos and explain. I look it up, and if you're willing, uh, donate to them, because um, it's a very helpful resource to both scholars and laymen. But he was talking about the Gospel of Mark, which is this is very prevalent. Mm-hmm. Like, you see this coming up about halfway, of like, don't tell people who I am. Then the, like, who do you say that I am? Right. Oh, you are the Christ. Um. In their world, there is expectations of what the Christ would be like. That's right. This is sort of divine warrior sent by God to undo the kingdom that was oppressing them. And so if they were going out to tell people, um, the Christ is here, the Christ is here, yeah. their expectation is a man in armor getting ready to kill the Romans. Yeah. But he first must show what it means to truly be the Christ, which is to die on the cross. And then once they realize, because uh, like, oh, the Christ is the one who dies uh, right. for the sins of the world and raised um, from the dead. That is the Christ. And so once they get that, then they, they are ready to go out. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because here you see Peter getting who Jesus is right, but what he's come to do wrong. And it's on the heels of that where he says, you need to sit in the dugout for a little bit or, or, or be in the bullpen until, until the time is ready. And, I mean, God's sovereignty is, um, I believe in it, but you see how God works through people and time and circumstance in order to bring about his plans. And so that's always been um, uh, a hard word for me, too, of Jesus strictly told. But, again, that's, it's especially hard for us because we are given the full picture of who Jesus is. And that's certainly not a word to us of Cathedral Church of the Advent, go and tell no one uh, of, of, of who Jesus is and what he's what he's going to do. But I'll come back. I'm going to, uh, you're going to see my progress. I'm going to look it up, and I'm going to come back next week with a uh, hopefully better answer. Thank you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.